some test, texts of Scripture test your commitment to systematic expository preaching. Um, last week, there was a test of that because we dealt with a text of Scripture, or we rather we summarized it during prayer service that tested the commitment to expository systematic teaching of the Word of God because it was just a lot of names, and that's difficult in a way. But the difficulty in this text of Scripture is not in its uh, lack of intrigue or interest, but in the topics that it covers. You probably noticed in these two chapters an awful lot of weeping, awful lot of tears, awful lot of hard things from the rape of Dinah to the hard labor of uh, Rachel and the death in childbearing. And this is a hard text of Scripture, not just hard to understand, it's actually easier to understand. It's hard because we understand it. What I want to ask you to do is, the reason why we're doing two chapters is, is that just there's a lot here, but then also you can summarize these things pretty simply. In other words, what we read explains it a lot. Um, so I want you to take chapter 34 and just set your thoughts, your concerns, your questions aside for now. And we are going to jump over and talk through chapter 35. And then we're going to come back to chapter 34 here at the end of the sermon today. Chapter 35 of Genesis is primarily tying up the loose ends of Jacob's cycle of Chronicles, Jacob's story. Interestingly, uh, Isaac's story, or Abraham's, uh, Isaac's story ends with the death of Abraham, his father, and Jacob's story ends with the death of Isaac, his father. Joseph's story will end with the death of Jacob. And so all of the cycles, they sort of kind of work that way. So why do we say this is the end of Jacob's cycle of stories, even though he's not dying? Instead, Isaac, his father, is dying after 180 years uh, because he really disappears from the main point of Moses as the scribe, as the author. He doesn't disappear from history. He still lives, and he still has actions and interactions with his sons. But you clearly see that after this, one particular son takes precedence in the stories being told by Moses, and that is Joseph. And so the same thing has happened. So this is the loose ends, the tying up, the Jacob cycle, cycle of stories. Though he's not gone, the story shifts to being more about Joseph than Jacob at this point. So I want to just tie up some of these loose ends that this text does. So first of all, where are they when we have the setting of both chapter 34 and 35? Uh, we left Jacob and his family last time in Sukkoth, or the place where he had settled down here in the region of Shechem. Shechem is, of course, you recognize the name of the prince in chapter 34, uh, Shechem's uh, family, his father Hamor, they're Hivites, so that's a tribe of Canaanites inhabitants in this land. Um, Shechem is the city, the father Hamor, named after his son, his firstborn, who if you read, paid attention in chapter 34, he seems to be a really big deal to Hamor, Hamor his father, kind of like we'll actually see with Joseph to uh, Jacob, a favored son. And Shechem seems to be that guy. And so this is the region of Shechem, but it doesn't mean just this one city. It's this larger region. I've indicated with this kind of yellow dot here, there's a region therein. They're right on the Jordan River, perhaps even settled on the uh, east side of the Jordan River, so not yet even in the land, which is why in chapter 35, God comes to Jacob again and says, when are you going to go to Bethel like I told you? Bethel's in the land. It's in the heart. It's the center 
of the promised land. And so he wants Jacob to go back to there, not only because this is where God had first met Jacob on his way out of the land into Paran Aram. Many weeks ago, we mentioned, walked through that, and he had this vision of the Jacob's ladder, the angels ascending and descending, and God gave these promises, and he made a vow. That was in Bethel, house of God is what that means. But also, this is the center. This is Jacob taking uh, possession of what was rightfully his through Abraham and Isaac in the promise of God. So go back. And so in chapter 35, Jacob realizes it's time for us to go back because God tells him, when are you going to go back? Now what's happened in the meantime is they've been in Sukkoth for some time. Most likely, the children are all grown. Now they're not probably old by this point. They're in their 20s. Now they were all birthed in a relatively short period of time, in seven years time frame. So they grow up together um, around that same time. And so they're probably all in their Their mid-twenties is what most understand based upon the text and the language being used to describe both Dinah and the brothers and their ages. So they're in their twenties, strong young men out in the fields fighting. Um, And Jacob says, it's time for us to take our family and finally go to Bethel. So they do, and what he charges them is very interesting, is put away all the foreign gods. Now get rid of your idolatry because we're going to the house of God. And this should be just some sort of like quick like, well, duh, right? Get rid of your idols. We're going to go worship. But then it also should bring the question of why do you even have idols in the first place? Remember, their mother, Rachel, had taken her her father's Laban's idols and hid them and they brought... It just seems like, and this isn't the point of the sermon, it just seems like idols have a way of hanging around. I'm going to let you just make that application yourself. But for me, the idols of my heart, even after I've been converted and trusted in Christ, just have a way of hanging around. And we are constant idol factories producing new ones when those ones are gone. We see that even back in the text of Scripture here. Here they still have their idols, but put them away. We're going to go worship. So they bury them under a big terebinth tree. Now, I think that's a very noble thing to do. I don't think that would save them for later. I think they're like trying to get rid of them um, by burying them, get rid of these idols. We don't want them in our house. And so they do get rid of it. They go back to Bethel. Now, first of all, when you're reading this, you might notice some of the similarities between some kind of a repetitive idea. First, he gives a covenant reminder, just similar to chapter 28. There's the removal of the idols, and that reminds us of the stealing of the idols back in chapter 31. They come to Luz, name of the town there. There's a description in this text telling us that was renamed Bethel by Jacob the first time he went through, which might actually cause some confusion. I thought it was named Bethel here. Um, This is a renaming of it. This is very common in the patriarchal stories, the repetition, the renaming of things, the saying it over again and again and again. So it's not a contradiction. This is renaming it, redescribing it as Bethel. Jacob essentially goes there and says, yes, Bethel is another way of saying that. And then we have this weird little, if you noticed, was working through these loose ends in chapter 35, this weird little note that Rebecca's nurse, Deborah, dies and is buried in Bethel. And then it moves on. What's the point of this? There is a actually historical point in all this. One, that connects to the very end of the text where we have the death of Isaac, and he's buried as well. His wife, Rebecca's, already died. And so this is Moses just signifying to us something very simple. 
the moving of one generation to another. The remnants of Isaac and his family and his household are gone. Even Rebekah's nursemaid, she's now gone too. And now we have the new family, the tribes who are now rising up. So it's, it's a mere, it's a literary device to signal the moving from one generation to the next. God appears to Jacob again in Bethel, and he renames him Israel. And you might say, didn't he already do that in Peniel, which was just near Bethel? And the absolute answer is yes, he did. But did he not also give Abraham the covenant and then come and give it to him again, and then come and give it to him again, and so on and so on? He does the same thing with Jacob. Jacob, you're not Jacob, remember? <laughs> you're Israel. Almost as if he's saying, be what you are, be Israel, God's fighter, not Jacob, your deceiver, constantly reminding him of this. So this is just a repetition of the, of the naming. So he was named uh, Israel in Peniel and then renamed Israel in Bethel again. And then this is what's unique. He makes a covenant and this time God gives the expression of the covenant in chapter 35 very clearly just like he gave to Abraham and Isaac. But what's unique about with all these similarities between the first time in chapter 28 when Jacob was in Bethel and the second time, what makes it all unique is that this time Jacob doesn't vow and bargain with God. He doesn't make any vows to God this time. Instead, he simply receives the grace of God in the covenant. And then in verse 16, after Jacob then worships instead of making a vow. It's a very different activity. He responds with worship. Then we have the rest of the loose ends. Rachel dies, his beloved wife, giving birth to Benjamin. She calls him in her pain of dying, Ben-Oni, which means son of my weeping, my sorrow. Jacob doesn't want to live with the name Ben-Oni, as a reminder constantly of his wife's death and his son, so he renames him Ben-Hamin, a son of my right hand. And so there's that little exchange there, then he goes, and then you have this other little strange one verse, Reuben has sexual relations with uh, Bilhah. Bilhah is one of Jacob's concubine wives, remember the, the maids that were given by Leah and, and, and Rachel, and what's this all it have to do in here? There's nothing really said about it. Simply this, and I'm rushing through this quickly because I want to spend our time on the more difficult text in chapter 34. So you can work some of these things out. By the time we get to the end of, or the, really the first part of the Joseph Chronicles, we will have, we will feel disgusted to some degree with all four of the firstborn sons. <laughs> they all do something that's disappointing, discouraging. And it's just one of those continue. And yet these first four, they receive the promises. Judah's going to disappoint us in a few chapters. Reuben disappoints us here. We're going to read about Simeon and Levi. And we're like, is there no deliverer amongst Israel? Is there none perfect amongst the people of God? And the answer will be, nope, there isn't. But there is coming one, and that's the concept there. There is coming one. 
Then you have the list of the 12 sons, sort of an end of it all, and because it's a tribal concept here, and then the death of Isaac, and Jacob and Esau bury him, and we have the end, the loose ends all tied up. All right, now, I just preached through chapter 35 in like eight minutes, so I think I deserve some sort of star for that. Um, but I want to spend some time in chapter 34. This is a difficult text of Scripture. Some scholars have said it is the most difficult text of Scripture that, that, that Genesis has for us. Perhaps no other story in Genesis is equal parts intriguing and disturbing. I'm a very well aware and with compassion I'm aware that biblical stories of sexual abuse can be especially hard for those who have experienced such evil I'm going to try to be clear accurate and sensitive today in the text of scripture this is about a decade this happens though about a decade after Jacob and Esau's reconciliation a decade after chapter 33 or more at least a decade some think it happens much later and it's just placed here in a literary device. The use of the phrase young and Jacob's sons and young women, young women for Dinah, would indicate that they are in their uh, late teens, early 20s. Probably Dinah is in her uh, late teens here, probably around the same age as Joseph. And we know in the chapters that come, uh, he's around 17, 17 years old. So that's probably about the same time. Now this could be, does nothing to biblical inerrancy for this story to be set at a later time uh, because it doesn't give us the time in the text of when it was. So it doesn't really matter when it was. But these are, this is a young family here, but they're not children. The story itself is full of literary twists and surprises. Moses, the human author here, causes us to groan and cheer, weep and celebrate in the retelling of the twisted history here. The young woman, Dinah, in our story, is portrayed as naive. She notes, Moses notes, she went out to see the daughters of the land. Some wrongly think that she shares some blame in the story, uh, those who have written that have primarily been those of medieval scholarship, um, which you can understand the views during the Dark Ages, why they would think that way. They've suggested silly things like, well, these daughters of the land, maybe that's an, a euphemism for prostitutes, which that's not, that word is used later, that's not the word used here. Or they've suggested maybe by being friends with the girl, she put herself in a compromising situation. That's not the point either. The point is to show that she's completely innocent. She's looking for friends. She went to find the daughters of the land. She's got nothing but brothers. She's naive at, at the worst thing you can say, and that's not even a criticism, is that she has innocence about her. Shechem, on the other hand, is the, most, is the other important person in this story, right? He's the other important person in this story. And he's portrayed as being a wicked man, a vile character, spoiled rotten, and the father will do anything that he wants. Whatever Shechem wants, Shechem gets. 
you might have been a little bit disturbed by verse 19 at the end of it where it says that he was, after all he does, he's more honorable than all the household of his father. What in the world does that even mean? How can he be honorable in any way? That is an unfortunate way of translating this. This doesn't mean he shares an honor that God assigns to him. It basically means he's the favored prince in the household. It means he's the most honored guy of all of Hamor's household, honored by Hamor, not by God. In other words, it's another way of saying he's the spoiled prince that gets whatever he wants. Daddy just gives it to him. Well, that plays out in the story, right? This is, by the way, the reason why Shechem is willing to make a deal for all the men to get circumcised without even consulting them first. Because Shechem knows, if I want it, I get it. And that's his attitude. So you see two very different, in the story, two very different persons here, right? You have the innocent Dinah and you have the spoiled, rotten, wicked man Shechem. And then you have in the story another character, Hamor, his father, who is a wheeling and dealing crafty guy. So first of all, he's He's got to basically, I, I, if you could just take a, I don't know if there's books or movies, but I'm sure there's some characters in your mind that you have seen somewhere where the son's going through and the, print, the spoiled prince is doing whatever he wants and dad's coming back trying to clean up all the messes behind him. That's Hamor here. So he comes to his dad, get her to me for a wife. All right, how can I spin this so that Shechem's okay and I can do, so he goes and he wheels and deals with Jacob and his brother and his sons. And then he goes and wheels and deals with the men of the city, and he makes promises to everybody along the way. That's another character in the story. We'll talk about Jacob in a little bit in his, in his response. But then you have Simeon and Levi and the sons of Jacob in their response. And their response is quite violent and quite aggressive. So, what happens? Dinah is out. She is looking for friends, and the prince Shechem, who will not be denied, sees her, and he rapes her. And lest anybody wonders if that's what's actually happening, look at the text and the words used, very carefully chosen by Moses in chapter 2. He saw her, he took her, and it says lay with her, but one scholar pointed out this is a unique phrase. It actually, he laid her, which he forced her, and then he violated her. So all the descriptions are here are not that we see young romance budding. We see a spoiled, wicked man who defiled and took advantage of an innocent young girl, young woman. Now what is surprising about this is that it says his soul was attracted to her and he loved her and spoke kindly to her. That is not saying in the text that suddenly he had kind and romantic intentions toward her any more than an abusive individual will give gifts to appease and speak kind things and manipulate. But it is surprising that he wants to marry her. Um, the text indicates when it says he was strongly attracted, his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah. That's a description. Uh, you might, some of you might have notes in your Bible. It's a description of uh, he wanted more of her. So it's not he's suddenly thinking, I would like to start a family with this woman. He's like, give me more. Tragedy, traumatic, 
and wrong. And very clearly in the response of Jacob's sons detailed why, what God also thinks about this. The boys were grieved and angry. And literally it says angry. It means burning with wrath. Because it says and it repeats it twice. This ought never be done. This is a very clear condemnation of Shechem. Well, he goes to daddy and he says, do what you got to do. I want her for my wife. Daddy says, whatever you want, Shechem, dear. And so he uh, goes to Jacob to negotiate the marriage gift, the dowry. What's unique about this whole thing is that in this whole process, Jacob has been silent. In fact, his silence is loud. He waits. This is his daughter. And he waits because he knows the boys are out in the field and he doesn't want to do anything. And he waits and it almost sounds like he's going to like, how can I break this news to them that keeps us from getting into any trouble? Because he's silent and waits for them to come in. The brothers aren't silent. They are grieved, very angry, because he, Shechem, had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. Then it shows us a very interesting twist in verse 8. Hamor, Hamor comes to the brothers. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, uh, Jacob's along with this, but the brothers are involved, saying, The soul of my, she my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters yourselves, so you should deal with us. Um, then he goes on and says some more things. But notice verse 13, it says, But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father. So who's doing the negotiation here? It's the brothers, right? Reminiscent of Laban and other times of this happening. Now, Jacob's not absent. He's included in this, but they take the vocal role in all this. They take the lead in all this. I believe, and I hope to prove this by the end, because Jacob's taking a wrong passive approach to the whole thing. And so they take the lead in it. Now, you notice Hamor's deal, his wheeling and dealing. He's not just saying, hey, what can we pay for the bride? He's like, hey, and we can make ourselves an alliance here. We'll just like, every one of us is going to get rich off this deal. It's a win-win situation. The reason why the brothers are not interested in the win-win situation is because they know, and I'm telling, if you read the whole story as we did, you see this in the tone, because someone's lost already, and they are very angry about that one who has lost their sister. So they have a plan. It says they speak deceitfully. They are, they're, they're clever here. They say, that sounds great this unity of our peoples. But we can't have unity with uncircumcised pagans. So all the men need to get circumcised and then we'll pay the, you can pay the dowry, we'll have make marriages, we'll have this win-win situation. Now as I said before, Shechem agrees to this really quickly. And and. Hamor is like, whew, okay. Um, so they, Shechem says, okay, do whatever, we'll do it. He says that he, he agreed to the thing, like, we'll do it. And Hamor's now got to go to the men of the city. He's got to convince them, all of them, to get circumcised. So he has a plan. 
And his plan is, hey guys, we're just going to get this little moment of pain. And then in the end, we're going to overtake them. So he doesn't say it's a win-win. He's like, we're going to actually get to take their daughters, take all of this tribal people and all their lands. And he ends up saying, and we're actually going to conquer them this way. You see how he's duplicitous, saying one thing to one family and the other, trying to like find some way to make everyone agree to get what they want. Well, the men of the city, all them, they're on board, not because they care about what Shechem wants, like Hamor, but they're promised to have a conquering and a pillaging of this upstart tribe. They, they know the history of Abraham and Isaac and who these people are, these uh, sons of Abraham. And so they agree to it. We know that the sons of Jacob, particularly Simeon uh, and Levi, we know they have other motives because it said they were being deceitful. I have a confession to make. When I was a kid, young boy, this was my favorite story in the Bible, not because of what we've just read, but of what we're is to come. There's nothing quite like to a young man the kill the dragon, rescue the girl sort of story, right? And... I have, as an adult, I have to say this. Put yourself out there sometimes, say things. Um, Good on Simeon and Levi. Good job, boys. Defend your sister. Rescue her. Kill the dragon. Yes. And so they wait for the third day when the men can't get up from bed because they're sore. And they take their swords and they go in and they kill everyone. They bring vengeance on the house of Hamor. Not only do they kill everyone, every man, man, they take their daughters, their wives, their houses, their gold, their fields, their animals, and they make them their own. Now, not as their own wives, they make them and children, they make them as their servants. They bring them into their household. And the Hivites are wiped out. The Shechemites are no more. Shechem sowed the wind and he reaped the whirlwind. Now we don't have a lot of biblical comment about this event, do we? All we have is Jacob's comment at the end and then the brother's response to Jacob, which is a strong comment. We have Jacob who's quite upset at what these boys did. But did you notice what makes Jacob so upset? You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed with my household and I. At the very best, I think you can say that that's a less than stellar response by Jacob. This is going to come back on me, boys. I'm going to suffer for this. The boy's response 
is haunting. Yeah, but does that give him right to treat our sister like a whore? And that's where the story ends. It's chilling. It's haunting. It's true. Does that give them a right? There are some scholars, I'm not sure of this, who actually think he may be, they may be speaking with a double entendre here. They may be saying, oh, so either both Shechem treats our sister like a prostitute, but Jacob, you pimped her out. Should he, Jacob, treat our sister to gain all this reward at her expense? If that's what the brothers were saying, I don't know. There's like a debate among scholarship of the, who the he is in this text. Either way, isn't this sort of end on a very conflicting note? I mean, isn't this conflicting story? Aren't you at one hand cheering, but then also like, but I don't know, it's kind of like they killed everyone. (laughs) I am conflicted in it. However, as I kind of just simply jotted down a phrase, cheering with confusion. That's how I find myself studying this story. On one hand, Shechem received justice at the hands of Dinah's brothers. Of this I cannot be swayed. I read this story and I unashamedly applaud Simeon and Levi for defending and rescuing her sister. Did you catch the part of the story where they went and took her from Shechem's house? So this, this like reveals a little bit. It means the whole, hey, let's, uh, we'll, we'll give you anything for a marriage to your, your, your daughter. She's going to be in our house until you agree to it. Right? She's not at home. She's kidnapped, unable to leave until they give in to receive the gift. So they're rescuing her. This is just. Shechem deserves his fate. And I believe there are some evidences that this was a moral good. This was just. One, the biblical context. Later, the Hebrew law would call for the death of a rapist in this particular scenario. Thus, uh, and the biblical law would call for the family members... So the early law were the ones who were to execute the judgments in Israel. But even the biblical context, I think, allow, says, yes, this is a just response. Shechem's death. Number two, the cultural context. There is also no law enforcement. These are tribal families. Culturally, Hamor should have rebuked his son, given Dinah back, paid restitution to Dinah and Israel, which could have even meant delivering Shechem over to the Israelites to judge him. That would have been the culturally right thing to do. But Hamor doesn't. The reason this didn't happen, the text repeatedly implies to us that Shechem got what Shechem wants. And the Canaanites had few, if any, morals. So Hamor looks at the rape of the foreign woman as an opportunity for Evan to get rich and to please his son. And third, the reason why I believe this was a just and moral good is the authorial context. Moses, the author, who is, one of, is, who is from a human perspective a genius author, 
uses literary means to indicate that this is a great evil. The reason we tend to cheer Simeon and Levi is because Moses tells the account in such a way that that is the natural response, right? Starting with Dinah's innocence, Shechem's evil, the anger of the brothers, and then the very end of the story where they point out the reason, because she's she's valuable, because she's not a prostitute. So the whole movement of the story leads us to cheer on Simeon and Levi. Moses wants us to, I believe. Hebrew texts, more than our English texts, have tone to them. And the tone, in my opinion, of this story makes it clear that the boys are right and just in defending and rescuing Dinah. However, not everything in the story is so black and white. Simeon and Levi actually forfeit their inheritance because of their actions that day, according to Genesis 49, 5 through 7. So why are there problems with what the brothers did? If this is a moral and just good, are there problems with what they did? And the answer is yes, there are two problems with what they did. One, they use God's sacred right to do it. Imagine, and this is not something I really want to imagine, but just for sake of argument, Someone assaulted my wife. So I befriend that person. I do Bible studies with them. I convince them to become baptized. I lead them down to a river to baptize them, but then hold them under the water until they took their last breath. Or someone violated my wife, and so I put poison in the communion cup and gave it to them to drink in remembrance of Christ. Circumcision was given as God's signed covenant to his people. It was meant to be an, an expression of God's ownership of them. And they used this religious expression of God's kindness to them to fulfill their expression of judgment, to get their revenge. They shouldn't have used the sacred right, is all I'm saying. And two... We can tell in the story they go beyond justice, right? They not only kill Shechem, but they kill all the men in the city. The men in the city didn't rape Dinah. We could argue, oh, they would have defended Shechem. Perhaps. Perhaps we could have. We could, but we don't get to argue that because we don't know because they went in and killed them all. Furthermore, they not only kill them, they then kidnap the families of the people of the city. They do the same thing, right? They kidnap the women and children and bring them to their tents. In this case of Simon and Levi, they begin with justice, but go beyond, and their cruelty and violence, as noticed in Genesis 49, is seen not merely as in the execution of Shechem, but in their going beyond the bounds of justice, extending to people innocent in this particular crime. So, yes, it's conflicting, because they they pursue justice and judgment, but they do as men do. They go beyond, and they abuse the signs and expressions that God has given. So if you're feeling 
like I do, a little bit of confliction, that's, I think that's why. Because we see it's a good and right thing to do to bring judgment on this wrong, but then they, they're imperfect. They're, they're, they're wrong in their way they apply it. And they're excessive. And it's understandable. But just because something is understandable does not make it right. And this is difficult in the text. This is a difficult story, both in its details and in its understanding. I've done my best to portray it today clearly, honestly. I'm sure that there are various viewpoints and ideas people have, but I'm convinced that two things can be true at the same time. That's the issue here. Two things can be true at the same time. The world is not as black and white as we would like it to be, and so the Bible doesn't portray human activities black and white, because the world is not. And so, three quick points before I move to an application. One, it was an egregious evil that Dinah was violated. The biblical author makes this very clear, and the response of the brothers' grief and burning anger represents God's righteous burning with wrath against those who do such things as this. God created hell for Satan, and, this is, and all who follow him. And this is, the rape of Dinah is satanic and deserves hell. Two, it was right for Dinah's brothers to seek justice. We ought to applaud their boldness and intent. And three, it was wrong in how they pursued the justice. It was wrong in that God's signs are not meant to be used in deceptive means and mankind doesn't seem to know how to strike a balance and not go beyond justice. How do we apply a text of Scripture like this? What do we do with it as God's people? First of all, for those who have experienced such crimes and sins against you as Dinah, I want you to be encouraged that God's anger burns hotly against those who have done such evil. And though, and you are right to pursue justice by the means he has provided. Full stop. You are right to pursue justice and we ought to pursue justice against those who sexually harm our sisters and our daughters, our wives and our mothers. But two, rarely do those who have been hurt in this way experience full justice and recompense. Whether the system doesn't work or whether it's just difficult to even pursue it, but I want to encourage you to be assured that the end of Genesis, the end of this age, the Bible says that those who are outside of Christ and thus commit such crimes will be cast into the lake of fire which burns forever. God will bring true and full justice. 
Second application. This is a moral application again. Not so much, don't, please don't take this so much as don't be like Shechem and, um, and rape women. I mean, that's obviously, right? It's obvious, but another aspect of this. When I see this interplay with Shechem and his father, and what I see here with Shechem, he reminds me of, of Lot. He reminds me of Laban. He reminds me of these individuals we just read throughout the Genesis histories. And they are men of the world. They are men of lust and greed and envy. And just be reminded that those sins of greed and lust and envy are sowing the wind and will reap the whirlwind. See, young people today flee youthful passions, flee these things that will have a whirlwind of recompense, either in this life or the life to come. But I want to focus and close our time here thinking a little bit about Jacob in all of this. He's the one guy we haven't really talked very much about. You ever noticed in the stories of the patriarchs so far, we're on the third one, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You ever noticed how repetitive their lives are? You ever noticed like their wives all experienced barrenness until God opened the womb? Abraham and Isaac even have two sons, two sons. You have this whole passage where Abraham digs wells and then Jacob digs wells. Right, we have these constant repetitive elements. You have them coming from a far land, Abraham coming from a far land, Ur, coming through Padanaram, Jacob going up to Padanaram, coming back, and you have all these constant repetitive things. And one of the lessons of that is like that history repeats itself, right? Um, remember how one of those key repetitive things, Abraham deceives Pharaoh in Egypt. And why did he do that? Well, he failed to defend his wife his woman, fearing loss of his personal safety and security, right? Remember that, that scene in Egypt? Remember how it's so striking that that gets repeated? Isaac deceives Abimelech and Gerar about his wife, failing to defend his wife, fearing his loss of personal security and safety. And we think, wow, that's just like his father. Jacob kept silent when Dinah, his daughter, was violated. And he failed to defend his daughter, fearing loss of his personal safety and security. That's verse 30. He tells us his reasons. I'm going to lose everything. Sadly repetitive, right? But they're not that it's not that unusual. Adam, he too failed in his first duty to protect his wife from the temptations of the dragon. And the book of Ephesians tells us that no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And there's a tendency, a wrong, sinful tendency in men to abscond of their responsibility to defend and protect and righteously love women 
for fear of loss of personal safety or security, for looking out for number one. But there is one man in his greatest hour of loss, when he was suffering loss of everything, his security and safety was no longer even a thing because he's nailed on a cross and he's dying and there is nothing that he will do about it. He will give his life. And for some reason, in the midst of all his suffering, he turns to the only woman in his life, his mother Mary. And from the cross, he concerns himself with her safety and security. And he says to John, take care of mom. She's now your son. What a role reversal. Abraham, Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, countless men have failed in this way. But Jesus Christ did not fail to defend the woman he was responsible for. Instead, in his moment of greatest loss, that's when he showed the greatest care. I am thankful that Jesus is not like the patriarchs. I am thankful that Jesus is not like me. And if Jesus, in his death, would pause, when he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders, would pause to speak words of security to his mother, how much more then will Jesus Christ care for his wife, the church, his bride? God's people. Because we see in the book of Ephesians that Christ loved his bride, the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present her, present believers, Christians, his church to himself as a glorious church. Not defiled, not having spot, not having wrinkle or any such thing. But that we, his church, the bride of Christ should be holy and without blemish. Sometimes I ask the question, not what does the story in these Genesis accounts tell us, but why did Moses write it for us? Why do we need to know this story? There's all sorts of things he didn't write down. I think, my opinion, is that he wrote this for us to cause us to be disappointed in Jacob but rejoicing in Christ who is the true and far better Israel, Jacob. And to be thankful that our eternal security does not rest on a fallible man, but on the infallible Son of God, Jesus the Christ.